Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Good day to you, Dr. Woolman. And a wonderful day to you, Christina. How are you? Superb, but I don't get to see rainbows today. Oh, rainbows every day. You have to share those rainbows with us. Yeah. <laughs> They're in your mind. <laughs> That's where I see them. Uh, greetings, everybody. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, along with Christina today. I will be your host on Magical Medical Tour as we search uh, yet another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy looking for optimal health. And today is going to be one of those very special days. Christina, as you know, most of the time we interview uh, specialists in fields of healing. But occasionally we look in another direction and we look at stories of people that have magically gone through medical issues. Uh, like with Lon Winston, who had multiple types of cancer and developed Thunder River Theater Company. Deidre Manns with recurrent uh, cancer, who's a doctor of physical therapy and a specialist and master of Pilates. We talked with Barbara Bruzzo, who had Lyme disease <clears throat> and started Living Well Navigation, and Gary Austin, who had multiple myeloma and does improvisational workshops. So today we're going to be in that quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, and we're going to be talking with Angela Enti. Angela Enti had uh, was diagnosed very early with diabetes, and we're going to talk about her diagnosis and her life with diabetes, and we're also going to find out how she dealt with the diabetes or how it dealt with her, and we're going to follow her career. Uh, so before I introduce Angela, how would people get in touch with us and talk to Angela? Mm, this is going to be quite a show. Um, now, at any time during this show, please feel free to ask a question, make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box and be sure to click submit. Now, you could be watching this show years later, years after this has, has been um, launched, and we will do our best still to get your questions answered or get a reply back to you. Now, if you're looking, listening to this through a device, um, you can just simply give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you so much, Doc. Beautiful. Uh, I just want to let everybody know a few things before we go on to be transparent. I would recommend that people watch this show because, first of all, you'll get to see Christina and Angela, which I know is going to be fun based on our uh, pre-game warm-up. <laughs> <laughs> and also, Angela is going to give a demonstration of how she tests her blood sugar, mm. uh, which is something she does quite a lot. So I just want to let everybody know, uh, statistically, more than 29 million people in the United States have diabetes, according to the CDC. Our population is about 319 million. So it means that one in four people uh, with diabetes at this point don't even know they have it. And about 86 million adults uh, in the United States have pre-diabetes, which is something that's very important now. That means you're on the way to getting diabetes, and if you don't change lifestyle and weight and certain habits, uh, you're probably going to end up with diabetes. So people, about 15 to 30 percent of people with pre-diabetes will eventually have it in five years. 
So if you're a pre-diabetic and you look around and three of your friends don't have diabetes, uh, within five years you're going to have it unless you change your lifestyle. Uh, Those are also, amazing numbers, Glenn. Yeah, that's why I give these numbers. They are yes. pretty amazing. Uh, and it's getting worse. You know, it's increased by about 3 million since 2010 when they did the last uh, uh, poll on this. Hmm. Also, you know, we talked about last time with strokes, how it's a burden on society. And they've uh, calculated that in 2012, diabetes has... Uh, and its related complications have accounted for over $245 billion oh in total gosh. medical costs and lost work. So uh, it's very important to be aware of diabetes. And I thought there would be no better person than Angela Enti uh, to talk with us about it. Although I can mention that we did interview Dr. Howard Zisser, I think it was episode eight. Uh, that was a long time ago. We're at about 129 <laughs> right now. So without further ado, I would like to inter interview and introduce Angela Enti. Welcome, Angela. Thanks, Glenn. Hello, Angela. Thank you for Hi. joining us on our show. Thank you, Christina. Angela, as the medical guide, I usually like to tell everybody uh, the path that we're going to take. And what I'm going to do, what I'd like to do, I'm going to start out with two questions for you. One mm -hmm. is based on your illness and one is based on your career path. And as we go through the show, I'm going mm -hmm. to intertwine both of those all the way through the show, hopefully. Okay. Now, so the first two questions I have, did you know before you were actually diagnosed with diabetes that you had something wrong with you? And the second question is, when did you know your mission in life and your career path? So let's start with those two questions. Okay. So before I was diagnosed, I was rather sickly and a lot. And I, I was diagnosed at four, age four. So being that I was relatively young in age, um, I wasn't fully aware of, you know, if I if that was normal behavior for a four-year-old. So um, even though I have several siblings, I, I, you know, I came home and I was just tired at, at crazy times of day, like 11 o'clock, I was just out. I, I needed to rest for most of the afternoon till like four o'clock in the afternoon. And that just wasn't, so my mom finally took me to the doctor and that's when I, that's when we figured out what was wrong. But I, I didn't really have an awareness to it. I just knew that I wasn't, I was always sick. I always had strep throat or I had some type of autoimmune illness. And they never seemed to get better. They just, it seemed like they just kept going. And how about your career path? You, you know, when I look at your career now, there's a lot of special education that you do and you volunteer with uh, the Special Olympics and a number of other things. When did you know that that was your career path? Yeah, well, my sister has, um, is cognitively impaired and she's also deaf. And so I grew up in a household where, and I, I'm the youngest of five children, and so my sister being older than myself, I was rather interested in anything she did. And so when the speech and language people would come to the house, I sat in on everything and was fascinated by it at a very early age. I want to say two and a half, three years old. And at age three, I started signing. So um, 
I would say that I became very aware of the special needs population um, at a very, very young age. But my career path into special education um, and Special Olympics, um, I was about 11 years old when I first attended my first, um, uh, you know, volunteer event. Huh. All right. So we're going to keep going on these two paths as we go through the show today. When you were diagnosed and you were told mm-hmm. you had diabetes at age four, mm-hmm. what was your understanding of diabetes? What did it mean to you? Uh it didn't mean anything to me. And the reason why I, all I did was go to the, my mom took me to the doctor. He, he made me drink some Coca-Cola, which I did not like. Um, that's what I remember. I remember tasting that little bit of Coca-Cola and thinking, yuck. Um, but I drank it. And then he did my blood sugar and it was 938. And then immediately my mother drove me to the hospital and I stayed there for two weeks. So I didn't, I didn't have any, I didn't even know what was, I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't understand. Just to let everybody know, 900 is pretty high. Normally it should be under 90, I would think, of uh, a normal blood sugar. Do you agree? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so 900 is pretty high. So why don't we start with a few things here uh, from your point of view? Clearly, from the time you were four until today, you've learned quite a bit about diabetes, and we're going to talk about how you learned it and how you've uh, turned that into a partial career for yourself. What is? Give us your definition of diabetes, and you can include type 1 and type 2. Take a moment. Well, type 1 uh, I have to explain this a lot to the children that I mentor. Um, and so depending on their age, uh, I, I basically just um, define it as it's a, a disease that where your body doesn't, um, isn't able to produce insulin and absorb the insulin into your system to monitor your blood sugar level. So that means that you have to take an external, you know, source of insulin. So, um, and then type two, my understanding of type two is that you have insulin resistance where your, your body's making it, it's working really, really hard and it's making this insulin, but, um, there's a block in the, in the absorption. So your body isn't able to to, I guess, absorb enough insulin to monitor your blood sugar level. I'm not sure if I get the type 2 correct, but I know that it's an insulin-resistant issue. Yeah, basically, so for some of our audience that uh, doesn't know at this point, insulin is a hormone that's produced by specific cells in the pancreas, which is in the upper abdominal region of the body. There are special cells that produce insulin, and the insulin is used Because we all know that carbohydrates and glucose are the energy producer for us. And so if the the glucose gets too high, that can cause complications. So insulin is produced to lower the the amount of glucose. And it's either helping to store it somewhere for further use or to bring Mm -hmm. it into the cells to uh, utilize for all cellular functions. Mm -hmm. And... And in type 2, 
as you said so perfectly, the insulin is still produced, although it might be less than normal, but the mm -hmm. cell receptors that react mm -hmm. to that insulin that allow the glucose to either be stored or put into the cells uh, gets weakened over time. And we see that it's weakened because the body is being stressed by having too many carbohydrates all the time. And that's why we see the obesity in our country and mm -hmm. the increase in type 2 diabetes over the years. Mm -hmm. So when you started at age four, were you injecting yourself? Were you taking your own blood glucose levels and injecting yourself? How did you control your diabetes? Great question. Well, it was 1978, and glucometers did not come around until, what, 85? So um, I did the ketone test, and that's how I determined how, I believe it was a ketone test. It's a, I'm not quite certain what test it was, but I know it involved urine and dipsticking. Um, so we had to collect the urine and then stick a little test strip in it, and then you match it up on the back of the bottle. Um, to whatever color it was, and that told you kind of a range of where your blood sugar was, supposedly. But it, the trick in those in, in that was that if you waited too long, it continued to get darker. So mm -hmm. you had like you had like thirty seconds or something like that. So I mean, we kind of guessed. I had a lot of low blood sugars, but I was on uh, basically a pig insulin at the time. We made insulin from something from a pig. That's what I remember. Um, and so, yes, I had an injection in the morning and in the evening, and that's like at breakfast and then at dinner. It's gotten a lot better, hasn't it, in terms of diagnosis now and, and testing your blood sugar? Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. I mean, those first meters were, were amazing in one sense because, you know, in, in about 60 seconds, you could know what your blood sugar is. Now it's five seconds. Do you have so a blood sugar <laughs> uh, a glucosometer with you? I do. Oh, yeah, always. Do you want to show us how you take your blood sugar? <laughs> sure. Um, so I, I use, I like the One Touch Ultra. That's my favorite. And now it's number two. So, um, <laughs> sure. So they're on to the second generation. They probably have a third, but this one works just fine. So I'll just put a strip in it. And um, so I use this little device. It's very, I like it because the first devices were, um, I'm a behaviorist, so I associate everything with our, our human behavior. And the first um, ways to prick your finger, the devices were, there was a needle and, it, on a, and an arch. And so you'd see this needle up here, and you knew you had to push the button down here. And so, I mean, you'd literally, imagine being a five-year-old and going like, or I know I wasn't five, I was 13 or 12. But still, the point is, is that you'd stick it on there and you'd have to watch this thing come and it's like watching a dart come and hit your finger. It was awful. So now the needle's hidden. It's in there. You can see it. So you just determine the um, number and the number of how thick your finger is, I guess. And then cock it and, and then get enough blood. So I don't know if you can see that. It's not a lot. And then you just stick it on and we'll have a result. And from that result, you then determine Perfect. how much insulin you have to take. <clears throat> yes. And in you this know, case, my blood, my blood sugar was good. So no insulin is needed. 
Uh, tell us what it was. It was 15. You know, I, I think, Christina, I don't know how you feel about this, but if I was told that I could live a perfectly healthy life, never have anything wrong with me, all I had to do was stick my finger painfully and make myself bleed multiple times a day for the rest of my life every day. I'm not sure that even that would be great for me. Well, you know, I, I, I think as a child, as, as uh, Angela, as you were saying, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, I, I was through a lot of sick illnesses as myself as a child. So, so every time something would come up, I'd go, oh, really? Again? <laughs> you know, it's like, Mm. Okay, well, what's new? Because this has been the fact of life. This is all you've known, right? This is all I've known. And then for you being so tired and lethargic and, you know, like, like loss of energy when you're looking at all your siblings that could be running around and playing and you just don't feel like doing anything. My, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I almost think at that age, you wouldn't know the difference. You just want to feel like them. You're very, you're very on, I mean, right on, because the thing is, I felt so terrible, like you said, for so long that once I was diagnosed and I had a little bit of insulin and my blood sugar started to kind of level out, I started to feel great. So, you know, and, you know, for the first almost 10 years of having the disease, I didn't have to prick my finger because that technology wasn't available to me. But then when that came around, you know, a prepuse prepubescent teenager, um, I wasn't too thrilled about it, but I got through it. Let's just say that. I wasn't the best diabetic, let me tell you, but you know, it's part of my history. Yeah, and, and let's be very clear, having type 1 diabetes, which is relatively rare, uh, maybe somewhere between 3 and 5% of people, but it's, it's not a disease that you just have and it's not a big deal. There's uh, consequences of having diabetes. There are strokes. We talked about that last time. There's vascular problems. Uh, there's also, uh, not everybody lives when they're diagnosed with insulin-dependent diabetes, or at least, uh, you know, many years ago. It's a little bit different now. Mm. You want to speak to that a little bit and how that influenced you? Sure, because I, I, I didn't quite grasp the gravity of the disease when I was a child, um, but my mother, being a very religious woman, um, took myself and my sister around to visit people who were sick in our church. And, and one family in particular, she said, now, Angie, I want you to pay attention because this girl has type one diabetes. And we walked into the house and the house smelled of brownies. And I was like, Oh my gosh, she's a, she's a diabetic like me. She knows the secret to getting sugar. Yay. I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was so excited. So we walk in and I I meet her and she didn't look sick. She wasn't she was an adult. She was in her early twenties. And I look at her and I'm thinking she looks she looks totally normal, yet the house smells of brownies. And she pulls them out and the mom says to my mom right in front of me, um, well, we just came back from her ophthalmologist, and she is um, she's blind in her right eye, and now the left one she is it's almost completely. Wow. She can she couldn't. So the point that I was trying to get to in a roundabout way is that 
she didn't, um, she was still in that early phase of the disease, even though she had had it a long time. She didn't, she didn't want to recognize that, you know, you have to have moderation. You, you can't just go full force and just eat brownies every day and, you know, hope for the best. You have to do the steps needed to live a healthy life. And that that was a very eye-opening experience. I remember to this day what their kitchen looked like and everything about that experience because my fear was that I would be blind. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and that's a realistic fear as a type 1 diabetic in those days, especially. Now, I think it's a little more manageable and we talk about things a little bit more and the technology's advanced quite a bit. So, well, we're going to get into the technology a little bit, but I want to stay a little bit more with your uh, process here. It seems at a certain point, this uh, diagnosis of diabetes, it took control of you. But at some point, uh, you had a recognition that it was time for you to take control of it. How did that Mm. happen? Oh, Glenn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, well, I don't even know. Christina, you asked the question. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, it's you know, look, every disease you have this um this moment where you just realize what I'm doing isn't right. And I didn't even have the moment myself. Someone had to tell me and it was I was in another DKA diabetic ketoacidosis. Mm. moment and I was hospitalized and I couldn't eat anything because my blood sugar was way out of control. I think it was like 550 and I was 20, maybe 21. Um, and my childhood doctor came, drove from Cambria down to Sierra Vista hospital in San Luis Obispo. And he sat at my bedside and it was like 11 o'clock at night. And I was really thankful because, you know, I didn't have anyone else to talk to. And he said, he gave me this realistic talk like a father to a daughter almost. And he just said, you know, what are you doing with your life? What you you realize that the path that you're on, you're going to die a horrible death. And like gave me this like scared straight speech. Mm. And I, I listened to everything he said and it just kind of shook me to my core. And I realized that, you know what? I am not a rebel without a cause. I need to take care of myself. And so it was a it was a slow journey in that by age 22, I had found a doctor. Uh, so it took a whole year about to kind of really get myself. Um, but once I did, oh, man, everything just kind of fell into place for me as a diabetic. So, OK, and, and that's I, I, really good. Did you want to say something else? No, I was just going to say that, you know, I I still see that doctor. I used to babysit his children when I lived in Cambria, and every time I see him, I thank him. Oh, that's very nice. I, I always like it when uh, the doctor has an influence on the illness in a positive way like this. And it's interesting because now we can transition a little bit. We'll stay with the diabetes periodically, but as I said, I want to intertwine. He mentioned to you, what are you going to do with your life? So you're about 19, 20, 21, 22 now. Uh, You're in college? I was, yes, I was in college. And what was was your major at that point? What did you want to be when you grew up? 
going to be a clinical psychologist because my major was psychology. And actually, my undergraduate degree is in psychology. Mm -hmm. So at the time, that's kind of where I was going. But then I didn't really want to spend my time in a lab. I'm more, I like people. I love children. Um, So I just kind of fell into the career that I'm in. And so, and what that is, is work, I work with children with autism, um, utilizing pivotal response treatment, PRT, um, with Dr. Lynn Cagle from UCSB. We interviewed so, Dr. Cagle here on Magical Medical Tour. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Well, and... I, I've, I worked first, I worked as a, as a behavioral clinician with the um, San Luis Obispo County Office of Education in the school system. And that was different than what we, a little bit different than what we do now. But basically, I was trained in applied behavioral analysis and um, every methodology that is empirically based. Um, and PRT is one of those. So like the, there's the Discrete trial training, Ivar Lovas's program, and so in those day, in the nineties, that's what I, that's what I did for a living. And then I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that's all right. Well, that's all right. Uh, so let's stay with that now. You were you were now engrossed in in a career and making moves and making decisions, but you still had your diabetes. That wasn't going to change. You. Were you ever concerned that the diabetes would prevent you from your career, or did you have enough control at this time to move forward and not worry about it? I wasn't really concerned about my diabetes um, stopping me, in part because when when I take a child on my caseload, every family that I work with, the very first thing that I tell them is, oh, by the way, I have type 1 diabetes. If anything happens, I wear a medical alert bracelet. Um, here's my my husband's phone number. And I, I'm, I'm very upfront about it. Mm-hmm. And I feel that, that that's a saving grace for me. Because if you're upfront about it and you let a family know, then if you're feeling like your blood sugar is dropping before well, while you're working with a child, then, you know, you they already are in the know. When it's a surprise, then you have a big problem on your hands. And that's where I think um, the diabetes could stop someone. So having the, you know, letting people in the know is a very important step, I think. Anyone you work with and, you know, there's nothing to hide. It's, it's actually, I'll get into that. I was going to say, when I give speeches, that's the very, one of the first things I tell children who are newly diagnosed is, you know, diabetes type one is a livable, manageable, great disease because you have this whole awareness into food and what it does in your body. Mm. And so having that awareness is, oh my gosh, it's just a tool that you can pull out at any time. And it's something that saves you. In any situation, you can think, okay, wait, I had ice cream four days ago. It's very fatty. It's going to take a little bit longer to break down. Let's think about this. Should I have it today? Well, I could have maybe a fourth of a cup. You know, you you gain this awareness into just this huge, huge field of food. And it's it's invigorating, I think. Mm, what a so. great, what an inspiring Note to all the children that have are dealing with type one 
to, to your, just what you just said has just empowered them to such a great extent to, to know, to become aware, to be in control. It's, it's wonderful. Thank well, you. thank you. Thank you. I, I think it's, you know, owning what you have in front of you is one of the most powerful things that can just get you to the top of anything. And so, you know, so it's a disease. Diseases don't have to stop your existence. Mm -hmm. You own your existence and you make the choice in your mind. And once you do that, oh my gosh, the whole world is available to you. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's stay on that topic for a few moments now. You, as a child, <clears throat> went through menarche where you started your periods more hormones were starting to affect yeah. you insulin was one yeah. hormone and now you had the estrogens and progesterones oh. and, and <laughs> that can't be easy yeah. to do so i imagine that one of the things that you've done in your life now is you go back you mentioned this earlier that you mentor yeah. young people uh how do you mentor a young girl who's been diagnosed with type one and she hasn't started her periods yet and she's going to go through all this. So what are, the, what are some of the top things that you talk to them about? Um, you know, we talk about, I, I actually have someone right now that I'm mentoring, but she's started, um, she's 16. And so I talk about um, just being in, aware of those, you know, 10 to 14 days that your blood sugar is going to shift and you're going to see some spikes that don't normally occur. So during that time, maybe test your sugar more often than you would. That's one of the secrets to maintaining a healthy lifestyle it, with type one. You have to test your blood sugar and you have to be, you know, you, you really have to be aware. It's, uh, and, and that's hard for teenagers really hard. I mean, I did not, I was, and I give myself as an example because I feel it's, it's helpful. I, I think too often you go and you hear a motivational speaker and gosh, their life is so perfect. And, you know, I, I put myself in this 16 year old shoes and, you know, they're trying to just live life like any other teenager and trying to look as good as they can and do all those things and go to high school and be popular and all, all of that. And here I am, a 41-year-old who's, you know, telling them, oh, don't worry, hun, it's going to be great. So instead of using that tactic, what I tell them is, look, I've lived it. I know what it's like to be 16 and want to be recognized by John over there, who's totally cute. And, you know, you're doing your blood sugar on the side. Yeah, that's not cool. So... I put myself in their position and I think that that's helpful for them to hear that, you know, when I just give them the example of when I was in high school, I ignored my disease. I ignored my blood sugar and I paid the price. I mean, I was in DKA a lot in high school and, and I'm not proud of it, but it's part of my history. And, you know, it's how I came to understand the disease and realize the importance of doing your blood sugar. So using that example is really, really helpful. Mm, I can see that. Science and uh, medicine have improved over the years, and now uh, yeah. in maybe the 90s, they developed an insulin pump, an external yes. pump that would measure your glucose levels, and then it would 
insert a certain amount of insulin into your bloodstream without you having to do all the testing. Did you get involved in that at all? Um, it, I did. I, um, it, I have to, I'm sorry, I have to correct you just a little bit. Um, I hate to correct doctors because they're very smart. But in the 90s, <laughs> Christina, stop laughing. <laughs> um, in the 90s, they did, yes. They had an ex external insulin pump. It did not check your blood sugar, and it did not um, automatically give you insulin. It was you manually, you did your blood sugar, and then you programmed the pump to deliver a bolus, a, a dose of insulin. And then it ha works on a basal rate system where you set it to, based on your, you know, your weight and your age and so on, so other, so many other little things. There's um, an algorithm. And so that you set up a, a basal rate system where it, it delivers a certain amount of insulin, short acting insulin, every hour. So, um, so that was in the nineties. And in 2002, I was given an opportunity. I, I had participated in the nineties, several, several studies, um, because I was healthy all the time that I spent in my youth, not taking care of myself. Thank God did not cause blindness or kidney failure, or all those other things. So because I was healthy, I decided to give back um, in that way. So I participated in these studies. And when this opportunity came, I took it. It was um, an implanted device. So I had to have surgery to have an implanted artificial pancreas. At the time, that's what they were calling it. And it was, like you said, um, a titanium device that held about three months of insulin. And it was extremely fast insulin. And it was uh, surgically implanted in the lower right abdomen. And then attached to it was a little cable that ran up the side of my body. And then attached to that was a glucose sensor that sat in the right atrium of my heart. And that tested the blood sugar every, I believe, every minute. And I had that for five years. And in fact, at that point, and we want to find out about that, but... You know, in terms of you giving back, you certainly have given back, and you've you've taken this disease, you've learned about it, you've become a spokesperson for it. And I don't know if you pictured this when you were four years old, but in 2004, <laughs> you ended up in Washington D.C. speaking before Congress about the about the pump. Tell us about that. Yes, it was a special. Um it was, I was flown out by the JDRF, the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, flew me out there and another um, recipient of an islet cell transplant. And what we were there for was to thank Congress for their support. And so it was a special health uh, congressional group for health that raised a bunch of money and, and got money to um, the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation and I believe the ADA as well. A, um, American Diabetics Association. So these two big organizations, they're two big nonprofits, received a lot of funds for research. And being that I was part of research and this other individual was, we were both chosen. Um, given that we both, you know, were well spoken, <laughs> um, we were able to go, and um, it was an event. It was a very special event, and it was an honor actually to. To be there and have that device, it was very, 
it was great because there was one congressman, I don't remember his name, but his son had type one and he was there and I, I had him feel my abdomen so he could, cause you could feel the device. And, um, and he was just like, you're a ama- you're, you're like bionic. And I was, you know, it's <laughs> just, it's, it was, it was such a cute little response. So anyway, um, yeah, it was an honor and I'm very grateful for it. Where are you now with this, with this internal pump? Sadly, the company that um, created the device decided to go in a different direction. Um, so they explanted, they took, they surgically took them out in 2007. So uh, I am no longer with the device and I was on an external insulin pump for a short period of time. And now I'm just injecting insulin, hoping that they're going to have an implanted device soon. Where do you see the science right now? There is promising science, actually. There is, um, there's a, I don't know about the implanted devices. I think that there were several problems with that device specifically because the, um, the glucose sensor sitting in the right atrium, that's a, that's problematic. And I think that what they could have done is an implanted device and then an external glucose sensor. That would have probably been a better way to go. Um, but I'm not in that field. Um, there is a device that's being um, checked. I think they're in the second phase of the research, and I can't remember what university, but I'll send it to you so you have it, um, where they, they have this little thing that sits on your skin, and it delivers insulin. And it, 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 they tested it on mice, and the results were amazing. But it's specific to type 1. Hmm. So, I mean, I think that there's promising research out there. And they ju- and just recently, um, a company called Humankind came up with an um, inhalable insulin. And at first, the research trials were all titrated for type 2 diabetes, which is great for them. But um, a friend of mine at Stanford, he titrated it for type 1. So he, so he was able, and he, they did some clinical trials up there. And so um, the NIH, uh, or not NIH, um, they Center for disease control to use this drug. Yeah, they, they it's okay for type ones. So you just I haven't tried it yet, and so I'm interested to to try that out and see how how it works for my blood sugar and how how the whole thing works. Because I tried they had an inhalable insulin by Exubera a few years back, and I tried that, but the um, the absorption had diff- really bad difficulty because sometimes you would get the dose and sometimes you wouldn't. So you wouldn't know unless you Mm. check your blood sugar, you wouldn't know if you actually got the whole dose or not. So that was problematic. So they pulled that from the shelf and, and humankind um, is up and coming in that department. And, And this has already passed all of the research trials. So it's totally available. Excellent. Do you find sometimes that you're because you've been doing this for so long, you're just really comfortable testing your own sugar and giving yourself the amounts of insulin that you've learned how to give yourself. Absolutely, it's mm-hmm. simple. I mean, it's it's not. I mean, sometimes I have to think about the food more than I think about the insulin. So, for example, if I'm out at a restaurant and I have a I have pizza. That's a. It, I use pizza as an example because it's just loaded with goodness and fat. Everyone should use pizza <laughs> as an example for everything. <laughs> well, the thing is, it tastes good, but it is loaded with fat. And so you you consciously have to remember 
the fat. That fat slows down those carbs from breaking down into glucose. So if you just remember, there's fat in that. And so um, I give, I usually give half the dose that I would normally give for whatever I'm eating when I'm eating pizza or things mm-hmm. like things that have that fat content. And then check your blood sugar. Um, I feel like that's the theme of this whole podcast that, that you know, checking your blood sugar is the key to success. Um, but you, you do, you, you give half the, I, for me, I give half the dose and then I check my blood sugar about 90 minutes later. And then if it's still okay, then I'll check it another 30 minutes later. So within two hours of, you know, eating the pizza, I want to see where it's at. And then, you know, kind of go as the, the blood sugar part is so, such an afterthought for me. It's not even, it doesn't hurt by the way. <laughs> That's a common misconception. <laughs> I'm glad you're telling people that. Maybe I'll think differently <laughs> about whether I want to do that. <laughs> Glenn, you must have been good at giving the shots but not receiving them. <laughs> Absolutely. That's why I went to medical school, so I could be on that end of the syringe. It's very important. There you go. Yes. Tell us about, uh, aside from insulin and honoring pigs and all of these kind of things, what are some of the lifestyle things that you would recommend for somebody who's either a pre-diabetic or a diabetic, either type 1 or type 2? What are the important things in lifestyle that you look at and you talk to people about? Um, lifestyle, I look at a couple things. Um, number one, I live, I'm fortunate enough to live in California. Yes, we have no water, but we have beautiful weather. And so a lot, one of the lifestyle things that I do almost on a daily basis is I, walk, I take walks. Uh, you know, walk, you don't need to go out and run 10 miles. You can start slow and build up. So I would tell a type one or type two, it, you know, one of the lifestyle things you can do for yourself is park a little bit further and walk those extra steps. Take the stairs instead of the elevator. You know, just simple little things that are easy to do if you think before you do it. So, um, and I think that that's kind of one of the things. Think first, mm. then decide. And nice. so I, I think that's probably one of the big pieces of that pie of health is if we think before, we, you know, really think about, make a conscious effort to what what are you putting in front of you? And then when you're at the, I, I, I was told this, I, and I read this all the time, but it's something that I do myself, which is when I go grocery shopping or I go to farmer's market, I'm always at the vegetable section and fruits and fresh, fresh, fresh first. I never go to frozen and processed. I, I skip those aisles actually. So go to the fresh stuff. Because things that are fresh don't have the fat. So they're easier for your body to digest. So Mm -hmm. uh, those are the two, three big things that I usually bring up. All right. So now you've, you finished college and you went into your master's program in education. And, and at this point in time, Mm -hmm. you're actually in your second year of your doctoral degree. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, now, it is. <laughs> you're in education and specializing in autism. I understand that, and we're going to talk about that. But you're also in uh, specializing in sex education, right? Okay, so I just developed a survey um, 
querying parents of children with autism on um, sex education. And so what I did is I defined a list of topics that I deemed under sex education. Um, and to find out basically if there's a religiosity component to if they teach their children about sex, if religion is a part of it, if it's not a part of it, what's hindering that process? And what led me to that is that um, the the research that's out there that I've that I've studied um, says that the highest victimized population on globally is um, people on the spectrum of autism. So my goal is to I, I'm not a sex education expert by any means, but my research is all in sex education under the umbrella of special education, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, so what I'm trying to do is create, I'm hoping in my career, to create some type of curriculum that's specified towards people with autism so that it's absorbed that way. That right now, people with autism are clumped in categories like whether in in the educational system, because we teach sex ed in school, in the health class. And so, you know, I know with my own stepson, he didn't pick up anything from the health class. And I don't know if that's because of his autism or because of the way they taught it or because he was fixating on the cute girl that was sitting in front of him. So I think, you know, it's such an interesting topic and not many people really want to discuss it, but I live a life of if we don't if we don't discuss it and we don't um, bring it out, it doesn't go away. So we can't keep ignoring it. So. I wasn't sure exactly what you meant, Angela, about uh, people on the autism spectrum are the victims. Please uh, clarify. Uh, what I mean is all of the research that I've um, studied and read says that the people that are victims of um, sexual um, violence or, you know, any type of sex crime or, you know, rape, um, not incest, but rape and and those types of of, um, victimized events, people with autism are victimized more than, let's say, um, someone who's cognitively impaired. Uh, I see. Yeah. It's a sad statistic, and I, I can't tell you the number, but I can tell you that it is just bewildering. Christina, any thoughts? I'm sort of caught on that last thought. I think it's right. uh, extremely powerful. It's very disturbing to know that, mm-hmm. that our society has this uh, habit of taking advantage of those individuals who are, you know, who they feel may not talk or may not say anything or yeah, don't have the means to know that this is wrong. With your survey that you're doing right now, and it's, it's part of your doctoral uh, degree, I'm guessing, what do you hope to accomplish from this survey? What changes do you perceive that you might want to make or create in terms of education for uh, someone with autism and a family who has someone with autism? Well, one of the things I'm trying to gauge as an educator is 
do families want their kids to be educated in on this topic? Okay, that because that's a big thing. If I if if I, you know it, it's a parent's prerogative, but the fact that I'm trying to get to is that. So like this is the thesis part of my um, dissertation, and I know what the next phase, the dissertation, the, the the crux of the whole thing. I'm from this interview. I'll take down what parents want their kids to know, what they feel is appropriate, um, and you know from the because I, I have a list of things that I came up with, and some of the people who have taken the survey already have have added to that list. Like oh well, what about you know sex crimes or, you know, they, they've added, so that one of the sections is a little box. You can add other topics, which is really helpful because, you know, I only came up with so many and there's, when you think of sex education, it's just such a broad umbrella of, of a topic. So from there, I'll gauge the parents and what they want their kids to know. Um, and then my dissertation will be interviewing adult individuals on the autism spectrum to find out how they learned sex education, what they know. And I have a series of questions that I'm coming up with now so that I can put it out there to what these individuals know and what they wish they would have learned and how they, how they wish they would have learned it. I think it's important to find out from the individual themselves before we just assume things. We just throw out, well, we're going to learn this. You know? Yes, I do. What would you like to achieve uh, when you get your doctoral degree and you're practicing? How do you see your practice? Where do you see you focusing most at this point? Well, I really think that I see myself focusing more on adults on the spectrum, in part because I'm going through it now with my stepson. He's an adult. He's almost 23. And I see the I see what's available for someone like him. Mm-hmm. And and in my mind, I know that there's a whole other uh there's a there's so much more that's that he's capable of and that that um that could be available, but it doesn't exist. And so it's almost like not reinventing the wheel, but but in a way, just taking the system that's there and then revamping it into a system. Because we have there's so many with the rate of autism. I mean, we're gonna have we have so many kids that are gonna be adults, and where's their place in society? And as a parent, you want that's your goal. You look at your child and you think. I'm I'm only going to be I, I can't be happy if my child is unhappy, and and you want you want them to be successful, and you know with any typical kid you know you guide them you teach them and then you you set them free into the world and you hope that their you know their life is going to be rewarding to them, and so I want the same thing I want the same thing and I and I want to I I really see myself working either with some of these nonprofits that work with these individuals and helping them, whether it be for money or for free. That's part of it. The other part of it is that I'd like to also provide free education to the Latino communities because we have so many families, at least here on the central coast of California, um, who English is their second language. 
They don't know how to gain services. And those are the people that are suffering. And I think far be it from me, I have a fabulous lifestyle. I'm very fortunate. But how could I live a life when I can't help the people who can't, who need the help and can't find it? So I want to figure out a way to go into our little cities. And I think I've got it figured out, but I'm not quite there yet. But I will do it. Um, where we do little like town hall meetings, but but in like the poorest sections of these cities. And I know I'm a blonde hair, blue eyed white girl, but I've I've worked with enough Latino families that um, I think that I think they'll listen. I think that I can get I think I can do it. I'm confident that I can do it. I'm confident you can do it, too. And in fact, I'm so confident that I promise you that when you are doing it, we'll have you back for another show. Oh, no. I'm bringing her down to our community. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. I I knew Christina would do that. I want to know, do you, we're talking about, you know, we're intertwining your career uh, in special education and in autism and your life with diabetes. And we talked about how at one point you took control of Mm. your diabetes. Do you see, uh, any relationship with diabetes and autism in your future career of having someone with autism taking more control of their process? And I know it's a spectrum disorder, so there are certainly people that will be able to do things or not, but I just wanted your opinion on on that. Yeah, that's an interesting question because I have to, the only, the only person I can use as an example in my mind is my stepson. And I do believe that they're, that they, they own it, um, in one sense, like, like he knows that he has challenges and his, when his anxiety, for example, is really, really high, he knows he's off the charts with his anxiety. So we're developing, I mean, I have such a close con- con- uh, relationship with him, as you know. So yes. I, with him, I mean, he communicates to me and he'll just say, I, I don't know what to do. My anxiety. So I just, we are use, we're figuring out a list of tools where he can try and do that himself. I, I don't want him to be 60 years old and me, what, 80 something, and him calling me on the phone saying, I don't know what to do. He needs to figure out these strategies for how to work him, you know, control that for himself. And I, and I think he's very close, but he has an awareness. He knows, he knows he talks to himself out loud. He knows he, you know, he doesn't really, he doesn't really care. And the individuals that I've met, yeah, they, they know, but then they don't let it stop them. I have another friend who is on the spectrum and he just graduated from a university in Vermont is building web pages and is living the life. Love and life. So, you know, they don't, he, that individual hasn't let, he'd be a good one for you to interview. He hasn't let autism stop him, but he also has an amazing family. And I think that that is the key to success is having a network, whether your family is your blood in this case, in my case, he's my stepson, but he's like my blood. He's as close Mm -hmm. as he could be. So having a network to, to, to build that support so that they know how to use those strategies to be successful, I think is a way for them to have that ownership, if you will, of their disorder. Very nice. 
We're speaking with Angela Enti, a behavioral clinician who is on her way to getting her doctoral degree in special education and autism. Angela, we're coming to the end of the show, and I'm wondering if you have a health tip for us. I do have a health tip for you. <laughs> Boy, it's that works of, well. <laughs> it's kind of a two-step process. Um, okay. Number one, number one, I believe um, to live life to the fullest, you have to live your life in moderation. And you have to be in the moment. So my idea of that is, you know, you go big one day, well, the rest of the week, you kind of do things a little bit lower or slower or, you know, do things, you know, you can't eat cheeseburgers and French fries every single day of your life, but maybe every other month or something like that, you know, mm. moderation, moderation is the key. And the concept of living in the moment, oh my gosh, that's the one lesson that having type one diabetes for 38, almost 39 years, um, has given me. It's the gift it's given me, living in the moment. I am always in this moment because whatever my blood sugar is right now is where I'm at. So <laughs> That's great. That's really good. Uh, was that one and two? That was one and two. Excellent. Before the show, is there anything that you wanted to make sure that you said during this interview that we hadn't gotten to yet? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think we nailed everything that I thought we would. Okay. Christina, any thoughts? Oh, so many. <laughs> it's always at the end of the show, right? <laughs> oh, give us one. Give us one. Um, I, I, this, uh, I, I love the way, um, that you both wove in and out of, um, your life story because it really is your life story, isn't it, Angela, between yes. the diabetes and your career. And we love the path that you're going on right now. I think it's, it's so inspiring and, and we truly want to thank you for gifting us your, your knowledge and your experience. I think I hopefully, you know, um, I, I do know, you know, some, parents and families whose children are going through it and the parents are, it's confusing. It's frightening for the parents yeah. because, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And, and right. you know, the doctors can make it sound really scary sometimes. Oh, they can. <laughs> right. So, yes. so it was really wonderful. And, and thank you for empowering those around you. That's the greatest uh -huh. gift. Thank you. Really, and I'm grateful to our very special guest, Angela Enti, for sharing her wisdom, experience, and expertise with us. I'd also like to thank all of my healers and educators uh, to allow me on my journey, thanking Christina Segovia and all of Yoga Hub and all of our listeners and viewers around the world. We hope to continue to bring you important uh, interviews like this, which will be inspiring and educational at the same time. Looking forward to getting together again on Magical Medical Tour as we explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time in our next meeting, Angela, thank you very much. I would like to wish everyone optimal health. Thank you so much, Dr. Glenn Woolman, for another fantastic show. And of course, to you, Angela, <laughs> again and again. I think it's uh, brilliant to, to finally meet you and have you on as well. And of course, we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We look forward to hearing your feedback and for your continuous support um, on, uh, 
on keeping the show going and, and really supporting us um, with all your, your listening and feedback. Um, if you would like to connect with uh, Angela Enti, please do so at her website, um, education.ucsb.edu forward slash autism. And of course, this will be on the website as well. And or you could, of course, send a note through our website as well. We'll make sure that she will get it. If you would like to connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman, do so through his website, glennwoolman.com, where you can definitely learn about his metaphor square breath. And again, we're always grateful for your feedback, comments, suggestion. You can either put it on the page and click it submit or give us a call directly at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, namaste.